could find a, a place to sit. There's lots of places to sit, so that should be an easy thing to accomplish. Before we uh, get into chapter 9, which is where we will be setting our attention this morning, uh, next week, Peter's going to give some time in the sharing time here together for some testimonies of change. Right, so that's going to be the part that you contribute into the class. So here's my question for you. This class started not just as a class, not just as, hey, let's come together and listen and learn some information so that we can sort of have a fresh download into our heads on some good biblical insights. Uh, That insight, as really in all insight, but this one in particular, the way in which it's framed, is to be lived and experienced and particularly applied. And so one of the things that we loved about this book was the intentionality to narrow our very busy and enormous worlds into a category and take biblical truth and go to work on a category, a category of our lives. Right now, I emphasize that because how many of us recognize at any given season of our life, whether it was five years ago, two days ago, there are multiple issues going on in our life that need to change. Right? I mean, everybody in touch with that reality? Uh, but sometimes the worst approach to change is to try and change too much. It's discouraging. It's not manageable. There are aspects of truth that need to specifically be revealed to us and specifically applied and progress needs to be made and further revelation needs to come to that. Uh, one of the things that I, I think through the years I've grown concerned about for modern Christians in particular is the lack of insight into our own soul. It's like when I say that, I mean, we don't know why we do what we do. We know what we're doing and we kind of know we shouldn't be doing it. But when the question is, is rising to, well, why do you do that? We don't know why. We're a mystery to ourselves. And to some degree that's understandable, but to a biblical degree, it's, it's not a good thing. The Bible Remember, it's, it's the Word of God that comes and it judges the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. It divides the soul and the spirit, the bone and the marrow. See, the Bible is supposed to penetrate its way into revealing, why do I do what I do? Well, it judges the thoughts and the intentions, the intentions of my heart. So you and I aren't just, we're not, you know, like a little ball on a pinball machine. We're just bouncing off of stuff. And none of us know what's going to hit us next. And we don't know what direction we're going to fly in next. We don't know why we respond the way we do. No, we do. If we look into our souls, we'll find out there's things that compel us and we respond in a certain way. Certain situations always set us afire a certain way. Certain things we're always afraid of. Certain things we always boast about. I mean, if you just watch your resume, you're going to find out you know some things about yourself. But rather than just kind of having that explanation to the people who have to kind of live with our issues and saying, well, you know, that's just how I am. Uh, You know, that's just how I am. Okay, well, now the next question is, well, why are you that way? And when you start digging around in motive, you start discovering things like, okay, I'm either moving away from that thing or I'm moving toward that thing. I mean, life is really not that much more complicated than that. 
I'm either running from that, I'm, I'm sinfully responding to a situation because I'm afraid of that. And that fear controls me. And if it's this situation or that person starts looking like a certain thing, you're going to see me put it in high gear and run from that. And I'm going to knock the furniture over on my way to get away from it. And I'm going to make a mess. Or I've got this ambition in me, this desire, this craving in me that moves me toward that. So in any given moment, I'm going to, I'm going to pull up anchor and run towards that because I'm after that. I, I want to appear a certain way in the eyes of people. I want affirmation. I want acceptance, right? I, I want to gain that thing. So why do you do? Why do you struggle where you struggle? Why does that need to change? Why is that going on in your life? It's, it's a mystery that can be exposed by God's Word. So what we loved about this, this book was really when we bump into issues in our lives, we want to get some revelation. We want to go a little bit deeper because you don't just want to be running through life you know, adjusting the pinball lifestyle. Well, let me just not get around that bumper because that thing shoots me across the room. And let me get, not get around that. We're managing all these externals. And we live our lives. We're 20 years later as Christians still struggling in some of the same old areas that we've always struggled in. Well, can God's Word really change us? When you read the Bible, it, it, it sounds like it can. Right? I mean, here, let me just chase a couple thoughts here. Turn to 2 Corinthians. This is, this is not in your outline. It's not even, well, it's relevant to the class. Let me just say that. Look, change, let me just keep this in front of us as an urgency. Change is an urgent matter. It's urgent that change be occurring in our lives. You know, one of the first things you probably learned as a, as a, as a Christian, probably before you were a Christian, you learned the Lord's Prayer. You knew of the Lord's Prayer. In the Lord's Prayer, you were praying for the realm of your life in which you live to change. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right, boil that down. What are you asking for? You're asking for God to mess with the realm in which you live. God, come mess with this world. Come mess with me. Come mess with things here on earth and make them like the things in heaven. You're praying for change. So change is all over the Christian life. It is such a basic component of the Christian life. What happens to the Christian when the Bible, which is so much about something moving from here to here, what happens to us as, as Christians when, when we stop moving? When somehow... Christianity for us becomes the gathering in of information. The, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm living right here in my experience, my experience which includes not only the forsaking of sin, but also the, the celebration and enjoyment of God. What happens when I start living at this address and I no longer am, am moving in that? But I'm, I'm still coming to classes like this. I'm still reading books. I'm still acquiring information. Listen, something becomes very dysfunctional in that moment. Matter of fact, your faith begins to be affected terribly by that. And you've got to live by faith. So if you're not believing big in what God can do and what He does, because your own testimony says God doesn't do much, God doesn't really affect our lives that deeply. But we stop interacting with the Bible the same way. Listen, if you're on the adventure of movement and things that have been a part of your life are being changed and eradicated, 
Well, then when you pray that prayer, thy kingdom come, you know what you're talking about. You've experienced the kingdom of God coming. You are not the same person you used to be. You are seeing progress. And, you know, whether you've been saved for 20 minutes or 20 years, there's still a lot of the kingdom that can come, isn't there? I mean, hopefully none of us aren't convinced that, hey, we're right at the end here. I'm one more step away from just the ultimate of the kingdom. You know, for me, everything about who I am is about to just become 100%. You know, I'm hoping today's truth today takes me over the top, Keith. This is going to be it. I'm 100% after today. Uh, probably not, right? I mean, the more I've gotten to know God, the more I've realized I've been, I've been guzzling from a thimble. <laughs> I thought I was slamming that baby down until I realized there's an ocean of God that is so much bigger for me to run into and experience. So change is an issue here. Right, Second Corinthians chapter three. This is all just to promote next week that you're going to be given testimonies. All right, <laughs> verse seventeen. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, freedom, and we all, right, big word, all. Every one of us, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. We are being changed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I'm hanging out a lot, studying some things about the Holy Spirit, preparing for some direction the Lord's seeking to to build into the church in in a month or so. You know, one of the things that testifies to us about the reality of the life of God in our midst is the transforming presence of God. Right now, I know miracles do that, and there's a realm in that we need to we need to look for the miraculous. We need to look for the the unusual expressions of the Spirit that God has assigned for His church to experience. But transformation, those who are dead coming to life and then living for the glory of God, listen. It doesn't get much more miraculous than that. That's a move of the Spirit of God. But when that movement doesn't take place in a noticeable way in our lives, it erodes our faith, and we become a people that are challenged to live out what God's given us to live out. So now where does this wash up onto your shoreline? You've got a story to tell about transformation. Right? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, there's liberty. Okay, tell me your liberty story. Next week when Peter stands up and says, okay, I want to hear some testimonies about change. Look, if this room's filled with a bunch of people who stare back at him and go, yeah, uh, uh, uh. Okay, let the silence scare the tar out of you. Because if you don't have a story to tell, you got some really, really difficult days for your faith. This starts sounding like the blah, 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 of a, of a bunch of noise in our lives. Does it really, really work? Does this stuff really, really affect us? Well, it should, and it can. All right, so prepare, and, and you know, they overcame by the word of their testimony, by the blood of the Lamb. There is, a, there is an expression of help given when next week some of you stand up and say, hey, I mean, you know, and you're only going to get, have a few minutes, so it's going to be, you know, like three, four-minute little presentation for you to just put together some thought of 
man, when I started the book, this is where I was in this area of my life. And I began to look at these truths and meditate on this and apply this from chapter 3 and 4. And, man, the effect has been this and the effect has been this. And to encourage people by your testimony. So that's very, very important. Uh, So let's look here at this thought from chapter 9 about change. Community for change. Which Your testimonies play into this. All right, Tim Chester says, change in the Bible is not a solo project. Change is a community project. All right, now think with me for a second, looking back over your resume, if you will, your resume of change. Uh, what areas of your life have you observed significant change in? Right? I mean, right now, let me put you on the spot. Write something down. Think about your Christianity. Think about your engagement with God. What area of your life have you experienced significant change in? Maybe a sinful habit that was dominant in your life that diminished, may even be completely gone. God has just brought that thing to nothing. Maybe an attitude. It may be a little harder to track. My sins tend to show up in categories of what you could be doing that you're not. Right? Some of us are... If your sins are the ones that sort of stick out and they're, you're doing what you're not supposed to be doing sins, your sins are easy to identify. Everybody sees them. But if your sins are in the category of you're not doing what you could be doing, you're not living what you could be living, they're a little harder to see. So my, my sins tend to show up in those categories. I, you, know, you could be doing that. You could be living that. Well, look and see. Okay, well, what, what categories have you experienced significant change in? question, what role did the community of the church play in your change? What role did people have that God has placed in your life? Next question there, what area are you seeing little evidence of growth and change in? Right, something about your life, maybe it's something that's sort of associated with your personality, maybe it's just a, an accepted pattern that's in your life that, that you know about and you bump into, you almost stop making a big deal out of it. But it's not growing and changing. Question, what role has the community of the church been playing in that area? Right, God has given us some grace to help us to change. We want to make use of that grace. So let's, let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. Mr. Chester spent a decent amount of time kind of flirting with Ephesians chapter 4 in his chapter. I'm going to try and stay close to where where he is. But let me back up from Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 is given some great strategic information. Right? When we see strategy in the Bible, it's important that we treat it like strategy. It's, it's, it's reasonings that God has given that if we want to see his kingdom come, and then he says, this is how you do it. Well, that's important. So before we get to Ephesians chapter 4, this section of Ephesians, it, it very much is focused in on change, right? Back up into Ephesians chapter 2. Here's the context for Ephesians 4 saying what it's saying. Verse 1, here's our starting place as people. It says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, 
and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All right, that's our starting place. If, if this is a, uh, a measuring line, a continuum of change, that's where we started. And that's important to recognize because there's a lot of eagerness here. We're not neutral. We're not just these innocent folks on planet Earth. We are following the Spirit who's at work in this world. We are cooperating with, we are eager for the lusts of the flesh to occur. So that's, that's kind of what we're made of. Right? It was interesting when you know, I've been watching the, the 9-11 issues being played out in the news and watching this, this one man. I remember him, he just... He was so heart affected. He was remembering back to the moment when he heard the news of what was taking place. And, and he said something that I think as, as human beings, my heart resonates with what he said. But as being informed by, by, by the Bible, I instantly have an understanding that, that he didn't seem to have. He just stared at these events, and he, he, he was numb. And he, he said, you know, the, it came to me. I thought, my gosh, what has happened to him? Right, he just, it's like his mind couldn't understand. Why would other human beings inflict that kind of grief and pain into other human beings' life? It's just, what has happened to us? All right. Compassionately, I'm there with it. Biblically, it doesn't puzzle me. Because I am aware of passages like this. And I'm also aware that it's not just having to do with people on the other side of the planet with some different ideologies. I have in me at work the same principles that are at work in them. My value system and the way in which the enemy of this world shapes the world I live in has nudged me and I've cooperated with and I have run toward the very same things. They just have a different flavor in my world. So how do people do that? Well, they, they do it the same way I do it. They do it out of the cravings to achieve and have and run towards values that are being influenced by the God of this world. So there's not a mystery there. That's where you and I start. This is this change project. But something incredible happened in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, right? not, not us. We made our minds up. We finally got sick of ourselves, and we made a change, right? Wrong, right? This is the good news about change. Change, this should be a mantra. Change starts with God. The course that you and I are on is verses 1 through 3. Left to ourselves, if there's not a verse 4, if there's not a huge but God, you and I are still on that course. We are not different at all. We are still operating out of the same issues and desires and cravings. But verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. You know, he still hadn't gotten around to us yet. Right, you still see in here that there's this change that God wants to bring into our lives that's based in his mercy. It's based in the richness of his love with which he loved us. It's not based in, finally, God saw that we were tired of the course that we were on. We were tired of being the way that we were and following the course of this world and God who was at work in the hearts of man. We were so tired of that, so God then stepped in. That's not how the Bible reads, is it? God was rich in mercy. How many guys, would you pray for God to do something in your life? That's where you start. That's where I start. 
I, I, I don't have, I, I frequently start with, God, my resume is not sufficient enough to motivate you. I'd love to be able to say, God, because of all that I've done great this past week or how you've seen me respond to this and that, I've got some purchasing power with you today. God, would you do this and this and this? Uh, no, I, I start, God, with because you're merciful, because you're filled with loving kindness. Right? Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no man can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them All right now do you see change in this passage you once were this God jumped in with powerful mercy and changed the course of your life and then he labeled you this way you are his workmanship created in Christ for good works you're his workmanship you're that which God is continuing to be at work with. Well, what's going to be the effect of that? I'm going to be changing. God is at work. The merciful God who jumped into my bad situation, my rebellion toward him, he jumped in with mercy and got my attention and saved me, and then his work is going to continue because I am his workmanship. The God of glory is at work in my life. Am I going to be changing? Well, it just would make sense that I am. And then we move from this statement of here's where you were, God saved you, now he's at work in you, into strategy. Right? And that's where the Apostle Paul begins to explain his role in these people's lives. And he explains who he is in this ministry that God has given to him. Look down in chapter 3. Skip down to verse 7. Paul, is, he is preaching this gospel, and he says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. All right, now Paul is, he's moved from, you're this individual, God has intruded into your world, amazing grace and mercy has shown up, you are now God's workmanship. So what he began, he's going to finish. God's at work. He's faithful. You're the object of his kindness. He's going to be at work here. But immediately, Paul now moves into the realm of how is it that God is at work? What is God doing at work? How does God touch your life? If God's got tools that he's working on your life to accomplish change, you're his workmanship, what are the tools of God? How is God affecting us? Well, Paul begins to explain his ministry in the people's lives. He, he begins to pray for them in verse 14. Just for this reason, I bow my knee. Immediately, you've just been introduced to two tools, all right? Can you recognize them? What was the first tool? It was Paul himself. 
Paul himself is a, is a tool in these people's lives because he's opening the gospel to them. God has given Paul a revelation, the mystery of the gospel, that it's for them, the Gentiles. And so here's the first gift of grace. A revelation is coming through a man into people's lives. And then Paul says, and I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you be strengthened in the inner man, that you might know something of this God. All right, well, that's another means of grace. Where did it come from? It came through the prayers of another human being. The grace and the power for change, for us to be the workmanship of God, is coming through the prayers of other people. Right Now move on a little bit further here. Chapter 4, verse 1. The rest of the book is going to be very much about the life that we're living. Right? The rest of Ephesians is very much touching on, hey, when you get out the door here, you're going to have relationships and activities. Here's how you do it. Verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He just explained the calling. This gospel has come to you. It's called you to be God's people. You belong to him. You no longer follow in the course of this world. You're God's workmanship. All right, there's your calling. Well, how do you do that? Well, when he urges us to walk in a manner worthy, now watch where he goes next. Look, skip down to verse 4. There's one body. And one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is, listen, over all and through all and in all. Look at verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. All right, now you're about to see strategy here, and I hope it's strategy that we have grown to appreciate in our own walk. The strategy here is this. God wants to be at work in our lives. He wants us to be his workmanship. How, do, how, does, how does he make contact with us? And the most obvious way, and it would be correct for us to say this, is through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to our lives, regenerates us, and makes us new creatures. And we were indwelt by and empowered by the Spirit of God. That's all over the Bible. But interestingly, where Paul is putting some emphasis right here in these passages is on the fact that God who is over all is also in all and he is through all. And now he's about to explain, what does that mean, he's in all and through all? Well, God has given grace into the church. In verse 7, he's highlighting that. Grace was given to each one. Grace was given to each one. All right, so that means the grace of God has come into your lives, the God who is overall, the one that I want to have a relationship with, I want to be affected by, I want to change by God affecting me, is not only overall, but he is in all and he is through all. And grace has been given in all and through all. So in other words, there's grace in you for me. There's gracious benefit and power from God through you for me. And we've already seen that. Paul's already said he's a means of grace in the people's lives. His calling is a means of grace in the people's lives. His prayers are a means of grace in the people's lives. Now he's going to expand that and say, okay, not just me, but others as well. But I, I skipped a verse here, and this is where I, I need to make sure we understand something. The Bible 
the Bible recognizes that if you and I are going to be part of what God's doing, instantly it just got a whole lot messier. It got a whole lot more problematic. It got uncomfortable. It will be disappointing. It's not going to be a straight line. It's not going to always fulfill our expectations. It's not even going to fulfill the biblical expectations. And how do I know that? Because right after it says, verse 1, chapter 4, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, verse 2 immediately installs some things. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, now he's going to go back to strategy. So Paul's all this time, he's wanting to talk strategy here. He's wanting to say, you're God's workmanship. An amazing thing's going to take place in your life. This God who is amazingly over all, he's also in all and through all. That means you guys got to be together in this. You have to walk with people. You have to receive people into your life. Now, if you're going to do that, the only way you're going to do that is if you have humility. You walk humbly towards others, and you receive people humbly into your life. You have gentleness. Because if you don't have gentleness, you're going you're to alienate people. You're going to run them out of your life. And people won't want to minister to you. Get that patience. People step into your world. They slow things up. They complicate things. They fumble things. They break things. They don't say it the way in which you would prefer them to say it. They come with complications. So you're going to need to be patient with one another. You're going to need to be eager and fight for maintaining unity. Now, I I love these verses, uh, but quite honestly, they're only meaningful during peacetime. Have you noticed that? You love these verses right now, too, if, if you're at peace with everybody in your life. You love unity. I love eagerness. I love maintaining unity. Yes, brother, that sounds so great. Hallelujah. Let's just, let's just begin to worship God right now. Um, put me at odds with somebody. Let somebody stab me in the back. Let somebody gossip about me. Let it go bad. Let's see how much this is your favorite verse that you quote them. <laughs> Being eager. Well, you know, what's the source of this eagerness? Well, it's recognizing the strategy of God. It's recognizing. Remember, this God who started this incredible work in you, and he intends for you to be his workmanship and to be receiving from him this lavishing of kindness throughout the rest of eternity. He has put grace in other people for you. He's deposited a realm of powerful, effective grace in your life that you're only going to get through other people. So if you become intolerant, impatient, unkind, not gentle, unwilling to fight for unity, you are going to cut off grace from your own life. And you're going to cut it off from others. And that's where this verse goes. You know, verse 5 through 8 there. Right? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. If you stopped right there, you could have a good recipe for this me and God Christianity thing. That's me and God. You know, there's some people today who will not be in church anywhere because their, quote, revelation about being a Christian is them and God. They borrow some great verses about the Holy Spirit and His ministry in their life, and it's them and God, them and God. They're going to get something from God. They don't need the church. 
They don't need people. You know, and then they'll usually cite that, you know, hey, I was involved in a church and I had this experience and that experience. And the leaders were weird and they did this and said that and they shouldn't have said that and they handled that wrong. And then people did this and blah, blah, blah. And they got a, a big, huge revelation as to, you know, apparently that's just a bad thing. It's just me and God, me and God. Really? That's not how this verse sounds. The God who is over all is also in all and through all, and grace is given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Immediately, he therefore says, Therefore, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Actually, the Bible would be more clearly saying he gave these gifts of men into the church. Apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists, teachers were given into the church. So when one says, I don't, I don't need that, one is acting as though... All the grace I need is, is sort of this, uh, you know, I've called it before this pixie dust grace thing. Of course, a better illustration today is, you know, how many of you guys know what the cloud is? Really, that's it? The cloud? You know what the cloud is? You know, the, the cloud is this, I don't know what it is. It's this, <laughs> it's this strange uh, internet data collection of information out there somewhere that when you upload stuff, it goes somewhere. Ah, it just mysteriously goes into the cloud, right? There's, there's no touch point, right? You can't touch the cloud. No one knows where it is, but all of your data is in the cloud. And when you need to download something, you just mysteriously reach into the cloud and you download this data into your phone, right? I've got information that goes from my PC to the cloud so that no matter where I am with my phone, I can access that information. I'm not touching my PC. My PC's not involved with my life. It's just the cloud. I'm just pulling down stuff from the cloud. That's, that's Christianity for some people. It's like, you know, it's, it's just me and God. It's just the cloud. You know, God wants to do a work in my life. Well, brother, I don't need, I don't need any of this stuff here in Ephesians 4. I just need the cloud. I just need the Holy Spirit, man. What are you talking about? Just you and the Spirit and the Bible, and we're good. Well, really, does that what this verse sounds like? Because, you know, watch, it's going to move into a realm of grace at an address. There's going to be people involved in, in where this grace is. Look at verse 11. He gives the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, right? So we're attaining, right? We're moving towards something. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Maturity is, is a, a, a word of change. It's a word of transformation. I'm growing. I'm not in this place anymore. I'm in this place. I'm maturing. I'm moving along. So that we may no longer be children. No longer, right? Now I've got something in my past. I, this is movement, isn't it? This is the Christian on the move tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but or human cunning, by craftiness, deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. How does the body get built up? How does the body grow? How does the body mature, right? How does it move from here to there? How does it go from childhood in some ways to adulthood? 
How does it go from an immature understanding about the things of God to a mature understanding of the things of God? By every joint, every member, every person through whom God is in and through whom he is working, every part doing its part, the body builds itself up to become that. Now, I don't know what strategy would exist different than that, but when you and I minimize the role of people in our lives, we're basically saying, God, I don't know what you had in mind in this passage here, but I don't need it. I'm going to change, grow, and mature without this. But that's not how the Bible sounds. Tim Chester says on page 152 of his book, we can't be the body of Christ on our own. We can't be mature on our own. Change is a community project. In your outline there, I put it requires that you you are correctly connected to leadership gifts of the church. For a Christian, if I appreciate these verses, it means God has given grace and he's installed it. He installed it in Paul. He's installed it in leadership gifts. So there's grace for me to be affected by, and it's at an address in the life of leaders that I'm to draw from and be affected by. It requires that you are correctly connected to other parts that are working properly. So it's not enough just for you to say, hey, I've got a great relationship with one of the pastors. We're called to have relationships with each other, and there's supposed to be a working exchange in that relationship, a healthy working exchange between us and other people. Let me just install this footnote in this moment. The the mere fact that you are in a school of word class, many of you guys would be involved in covenant groups as well, Already, you're kind of poster children for the fact that, yeah, you get this. You you see the reality of this. It's why you live your life the way you do. Uh, Let me encourage you in this. There are many in our own body who don't get this. They don't get this. Please don't assume that everybody who walks in the door here gets this. Uh, it's, It's healthy. It's appropriate that you'd be involved in encouraging them to get this. Ask you, hey, hey, do you, do you attend a covenant group? Right, I mean, covenant groups don't in and of themselves have some mysterious ability to be transforming, but covenant groups put us in the realm of what this verse is describing. It puts us into a context of relationships where another part can do its part and I can do my part in that relationship. If you don't have any context like that, well, then this is just great verses that will never happen. So this is how we be intentional as a church about making these things and seeing them have an opportunity to exist. But if you know people who are not walking in these things, listen, the church needs to play its part to help people to do that. So think right now, you know, who do I know just not involved in these realms? Encourage them. Get around those folks. Encourage them to be involved in walking those things out. Get Tim Chester's thought from page 153. He says, one reason the ascended Christ gives the Spirit to the church is to equip each of us with a special gift, our contribution to the life of the church community. Everyone's contribution matters. We all have a part to play in building a home for God. This means that everyone else needs you, and you need everyone else. You need to help others change, and you need to let others help you change. Right, I put in your notes there, it requires that you are a working part in the lives of others. Not that you're just in the lives of others. Not that you just happen to show up. You are in the same room that they're in. You eat at the same time that they do. 
uh, I think there's a little bit more that God had in mind. I think I wrote this out in your outline. A great reason we don't experience change, personally, is because we are often too self-focused and not playing a significant enough role in serving others in their need. Years and years of being involved in the church has taught me this. The people who tend to seem as though they are not in a hyper condition of need tend to be people who are most effectively serving others. People who have managed to stop staring at their own needs and their own life and wait for people to come to them to make a difference. Instead, out of the pattern of their life, they are seeking others to serve and to pour their life into. And their own need doesn't seem to be at this level. It seems to be more manageable. It seems to be that they're not overwhelmed by it, overcome by it. Right? Proverbs 11, verse 24 says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever, begin, whoever brings blessing will be enriched. One who waters will himself be watered. Or do you ever feel, if you're feeling like, man, I'm, I feel like I'm paralyzed. I feel like I'm not changing. I feel like I'm not growing. You know, you can, you can, in a very unhealthy way, become a real navel gazer, stare at your own life, look at it, be angry about it, be bothered by it, uh, want it to change. You're not changing. You're getting frustrated. So it must be, it must be. The, there's got to be fault somewhere. And you've already blamed yourself maybe for years. And so you're kind of done with that. It's got to be somebody else's fault. You know, it's got to be who's around me. It's got to be the people that are around me. So it's probably your husband or your wife, for sure, for sure, without a doubt. Uh, if your children are anywhere within proximity, they probably are messing you up as well. And then there's those people in the church, you know, and not that they're obnoxious, but they just, you know, they just don't seem to care enough, right? I mean, that's the, the first place you can go. You want to find fault with people in the church? It probably won't be. Now, there's a rare few. It probably won't be because they're offensive and over-the-top, and have run over you and smashed you. I don't hear that complaint a whole lot. There's a few. Usually it's just, I, don't, I just don't feel cared for. All right, so somehow my frustration is going to get taken out on the fact that other people aren't to me. So it sounds as though I'm suffering want. I'm, I'm the one wanting to be watered, right? Well, the Bible says... For you got to learn to do exactly the opposite of what your nature is telling you to do. Right? I'm feeling parched. I'm feeling needy. And I'm going to sit here, and the body of Christ better come water me. People better pay attention to what's going on in my life. They better call. They better get involved with me. And the Bible is counterintuitive. It turns around and says, he who waters will himself be watered. Get outside of your own need. Step into somebody else's world. Pay attention to the fact that somebody else has a need. But wait, well, who will manage my need if I'm trying to help them manage theirs? Uh, It's a mysteriously awesome thing. You leave that need alone and let God take care of it. And you get involved in laying your life down for somebody else. That's how God operates, and his his kingdom flourishes in that sort of a setting. Uh, All right, always remember, all this stuff we're describing, change through community takes place in a dysfunctional setting. The people that are involved, 
right? The people that tell me, you may have heard this, uh, you know, the problem with the church is blah, blah, blah. And then those same people use that as a as sort of an excuse to back away from the church. All right, here's my editorial comment to people who say the problem with the church. The problem with the people who say the problem with the church is, and they back away, is that they've not read the Bible. I mean, read it, read it and understand it, because the Bible's not naive. The Bible doesn't step in and say, hey, all y'all get together in fellowship, and you're not going to have any problems. Can you please show me that verse? I don't find that verse in the Bible. As a matter of fact, when the Bible warms us up to fellowship like it does here in Ephesians chapter 4, it starts with verse 2 by saying, all right, oh, 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 don't go any further just yet. Before you butcher each other, you're going to need humility, you're going to need gentleness, you're going to need to fight for unity, right? When you get towards the end of this chapter, right, turn to the end of the chapter. How does this chapter conclude? Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Well, okay, we know that's possible now. He wouldn't tell us don't do it if we couldn't do it. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And did you get the reality the Bible's not stupid? <laughs> like, the Bible told us, y'all get together and love each other. You're the body of Christ. Y'all, come on now. Y'all love each other. Come on now. Like it was just this naive, senile grandfather book. The Bible knows. And when you get together, when you stop being humble and tenderhearted, uh, you're going to slander each other. There's going to be bitterness there's going to be wrath and anger and clamor in the same setting that I just told you all this stuff is to come into your life through. The God who is over all and in all is somehow going to have to take a seat to anger and slander and clamor at moments, and you're going to be on the receiving end of that. And if this is going to work, you're going to have to be careful to be kind to one another and tenderhearted and forgiving one another. Right? And then, I love this thought. Chester's thoughts are so great here. Page 155, he says, These behaviors, the ones that are listed right there, all have two things in common. First, they all involve other people. Second, they're all symptoms of thwarted and threatened sinful desires. Right? When do I become angry? When do I become bitter? It's when my desires, the cravings and desires, right? The, why do I do what I do? The deeper question about change gets thwarted by something you did. You stepped in and you, you stole the light from me. You stepped in and you screwed my world up. And I was so sure that the course of my life was going to put me right there and you got in the way of it. You! Right? You only get really angry over stuff that threatens your kingdom. Right? I'd love to say that we're all filled with righteous anger, but it's just a seldom event. I get angry when you mess with my world. And the fact that I hoped that that was going to be something to me. And somehow now you are in the way of that. Now, this is where spouses have such issues because they're so closely yoked together. Often we can't spot sinful desires. But when they're threatened or thwarted by other people, we respond with bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and malice. 
One of the great things about living as part of a community is that in community, people walk all over your idols. <laughs> people press your buttons. And that gives us opportunities to spot our idolatrous desires. God is using the different people, the contrasting personalities in your church to change your all right, so not only does God know the church is, is filled with dysfunctional people, apparently he wants it that way. He knew that that's exactly the setting that we needed to bring about some of the change that would only get affected. And this is not to say, please hear me, because I'm going to sound like a hypocrite in about a month. This is not to say that the Holy Spirit doesn't change you. This is not to say that the Holy Spirit doesn't change you without any human contact. He does but not exclusively. So there's a realm of change in our life that comes through people that God has assigned to be in our lives. All right, let me see if I can just race through a couple of little thoughts here, miscellaneous thoughts. Miscellaneous thoughts on embracing a community for change. Thought number one, it matters how we speak. Right? A, com- a community of change has as its basis communing, right? It has in it that word communication, right? Somehow, we're, that word communion in the Bible, it it means to have in common. So it's this exchange so that what is in me gets shared with you and what's in you gets shared with me and we have something in common. We share a life together. Well, how do we do that? Well, it involves communication. Right? The, the touch point for much of what we do in our lives with each other is a communication-based touch point. I say things to you, and you say things to me. You, that lets me know where you are. It lets me know what's happening in your life. It lets me know how you feel. It lets me know, like, like Paul said, I'm praying for you. When somebody tells you that, the only reason that you would know it is that they communicate it to you. So how we speak is a form of communication. Therefore, how we speak matters. In Ephesians chapter 4 and chapter 5, there's a lot said about how we speak to one another. Some of it's not all nice. Some of it's telling us how to control what we say to one another, what not to say to each other. And so how we speak in the community of God that's going to change us is important. Let me just rob a couple of thoughts here for Mr. Chester in case you didn't read your chapter. It says, we grow to maturity by speaking the truth in love. We need to be intentional with our words. We need to be communities in which we encourage, challenge, console, rebuke, counsel, exhort, and comfort one another with the truth. Speaking the truth in love is central to change. Paul says to the church, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. Paul Paul isn't just saying, this is so helpful, don't tell fibs, put off falsehood, don't lie, don't tell fibs. We're to put off falsehood. We're to stop perpetrating lies that lead to sinful desires. And that's what we often do. People bring their deceitful desires to us, and we stroke them. They say, my boss made me mad today. And instead of asking whether their anger reflects thwarted or threatened sinful desires, we say, he sounds terrible. I've done the same. People bring their moans to us, and we join them. (laughs) People tell us what they covet, 
and we extol its worth with them, right? You know, people walk up in there talking about wanting to have this thing, and it's got this, and it goes from zero to 100, blah, blah, blah. Really? Oh, man, that is so cool. Oh, and we're, we're, we're as hyped over it as they are. Right? Well, I mean, listen, you know, don't blast. Don't do the wrong thing with these verses. But sometimes there are issues going on inside of us that don't need to be met with somebody fanning it. It's like, yeah, oh, your boss is a jerk to, oh, yeah, never had my boss. Let me tell you about my boss. And it's like, oh, what is that saying? You are justified to hate that man with everything in you. Because I hate mine, and here's why. And so we just come, you know, sin becomes very common to us. We don't kind of bump into something that makes us go, ooh, am I thinking this through right? Is, it, is that how I'm supposed to feel about some of this? Listen to this thought. Part of our problem is that we don't rebuke one another day by day. So when we do, it creates or exacerbates a sense of crisis. Rebuke becomes confrontation. That may be, that, that may be needed in some situations, but often it can be avoided if rebuke has become a normal part of the way we disciple one another. Right? Rebuke. Now, I don't mean rebuke. You don't stand up on a seat, point down at people, and have a King James-sounding authoritative presentation. Uh, but it, it might be an adjustment. Right? That's, a, that's a nice word we use today, kind of adjusting it. Kind of being able to notice that, you know, hey, kind of notice when you said that. You know, kind of hearing this, listen, you know, I'm not in your situation. I don't know all the details of what's going on. Uh, but it just sounds like there's a little bit of this in what you were saying. See, because we don't go there with one another. Things get worse, things get worse, things get worse. And then we end up having to blow something up to help it change. We've got to confront it, probably even bring people with us. And by now, of course, there's probably been gossip and slander that this person sort of hears about a little bit. Right? Because we, don't, we haven't created a culture where we can sort of adjust each other in a way that's acceptable and appreciated. Right? Look at the last paragraph there. What should you do if others confess their sin to you? Right? Which, which, by the way, let me just, don't, don't show your hands. When was the last time somebody came up to you and confessed their sin to you? I just want you to think for a moment. When was the last time somebody came up and either confessed that they had sinned against you and wanted to ask for your forgiveness, or it was somebody that you were in a relationship with that's walking with you and, and they became convicted by God and they came to you and they said, listen, I, I just need to confess something to you that's been going on in my life. I, I would want you to know about it. I want you to pray for me. I want you to ask me how I'm doing. Uh, this is what happened for the last few weeks in my life. Boom, 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 boom. I mean, just think for a moment. Are these things common in the church? Or somehow we misplace some important elements of community? He says, speak the truth in love. Don't tell them their sin is understandable or insignificant. That offers no comfort because it's a lie. But we can speak words of comfort because we can speak words of grace. Right, so that person probably needs to get an appropriate view of that sin in light of the gospel. And then they need to appropriate truth for change. Uh, two quick thoughts here. Private sins and public effects. Helpful thought from Mr. Chester. Sin is always a community concern. My sin impedes the growth of the community as a whole. It stops us from growing together as a body of Christ. It has an impact on all of us. Even our private, secret sins affect the community. My sin stops me from playing the role God intends for me in the way God intends. 
And this means that the church doesn't grow and reflect its head as God intends. Listen, don't anybody in here today be thinking, there's things going on in my life, they're, they're work-related, they're not even at home, and they're definitely not at church. And so, yeah, I, I know that there's sin. I know that that's not the way to do that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's way over here. I mean, here's the kingdom of God over here. It's, you know, it's church, covenant group. That's way over here. That's not how it works. And don't think for a second that that issue is only affecting you. Throughout the Bible, the community God has given us together means that when I go off in private and allow sin to come operate in my life unchecked, it is affecting you. I may not understand how it finds its way into its effect on you, but the Bible clearly says it is affecting you. One last encouragement. Getting serious about serious issues in our lives. Chester said, The Christian community is the best context for change because it's the context God has given, right? That's enough said right there. That's important. He says this, the church is a better place for change than a therapy group, a counselor's office, or a retreat center. All right, now, let me just just undercut one last thing here with that thought. This has been my experience, and then talking with people. Some of us view human sinfulness, issues in our lives, issues in people's lives, as though there's amateur sins and professional sins, right? We don't have moral and venial, and you come from a Catholic background, you got those categories. But, but in the land of Protestantism, when we go to deal with sins, there's professional sins that require a professional to deal with them. And then there's amateur sins that you can just let any rank idiot in the body of Christ loose on. You might could even tell somebody in the body of Christ about that. It's, you know, it's, it's an amateur sin. Anybody could give you some advice on that. But, you know, there's those, there's those sins that need a professional. I mean, I have, people, I have people come tell us as pastors, you know, a person that they're close to has an issue in their life. They're struggling in an area of their life. They... They need to deal with this. They need to get counseling. So why are you telling me this? Because they want me to refer them to a professional. Now listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that there aren't issues in our lives that aren't complicated, that don't need to be dealt with in an intentional, careful, wise manner. There are. There are situations like that. But when you go to fix that person, if, if you're required to use something besides the Word of God and the Spirit of God, I don't know what on earth you're doing. Well, you don't understand. I had this in, issue in my life when I was a child, and I've had this pattern in my life for 40 years now. Listen, I, I, can, I can imagine how controlling and how destructive and how powerful that thing has become in your life. But when you go to inject something in it to put it to death, to give you freedom from it. Remember where we started? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And we all with unveiled face are beholding, looking into a glass, looking at the glory of God, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Do we not believe that? For every person, that you can tell me about who's got one of those stories that horrible season, horrible treatment, horrible background, lifestyle of sin. 
I can point you to people who had a horrible season, horrible experience, a lifestyle of sin that got blasted by God and is no more. So let's not develop an idea that somehow God created this thing, and he said there's a means of grace in the body of Christ. It involves a strategy that does have in it leaders who might interact with you differently, truth revealed by the Apostle Paul in the Bible, the Spirit of God, people with God involved in our lives, common people walking with us. I mean, and listen, a lot of times these patterns are continuing because, not because I need some rocket science revelation that can only come from a guy with a bunch of letters behind his name. It's continuing in my life because I won't confess my sins one to another. <laughs> right? I don't have any people in my life that I trust or that I'm willing to be embarrassed about my sins in front of, that I'm willing to go to them and tell them, this is what's going on with me. I, I know you're disappointed. I know you're surprised. But I have been living a lie and doing this and doing this for the last four years of my life. Okay, if you won't do that, and the Bible says do that, what makes you think going to a professional is going to fix you? I mean, let's do what the Bible says and then, then tell me it doesn't work, okay? Let's at least do what it says, though. So here we have in this, in this chapter an emphasis on people being used by God to help us change and help us grow, right? I won't get into this, but, you know, maybe in your, in your covenant groups and at the back of the chapter, great, great questions about what's that really looking like for us in our lives. Who's involved? How are they involved? How are we involving them? Do we ask? Do we invite? Right? This is a, this is a I, I got to tell you, it's a non-inviting society, right? You want people to bridge this strange, difficult hurdle to get involved in your world in difficult categories? invite them in. Don't make them kick the door down. Don't make them come to you and say, you know, God showed me in a vision you and you were doing this and, you know, come and tell them, listen, I'm being tempted in this area and this area. I am struggling this way and this way. Uh, can, can you please help me? Go to people and share those things with them. All right? All right, I'm over time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Revelation, Lord, as we read from the Apostle Paul, you gave revelation about a wise, God-given strategy through which we would be your workmanship. You are at work. God, you are at work helping us grow, helping us get free, helping us shake off the past and take on the kingdom that's coming. Oh, Lord, thank you that one day we know that these corrupted bodies, these minds still in need of renewal, are going to, in the future, instantaneously achieve a new place of glory in your presence. But Lord, until that day, you have given us means of grace. You have deposited grace to affect us and to change us. Oh God, help us to look into the faces of people around us and to recognize there's grace in that man, there's grace in that woman, there's power from God to help me. I need to go to them. I need to move toward them. I need to receive from them maybe the very thing God wanted to use so that the workmanship might take place in me and help me be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you guys. Y'all prepare your testimonies for next week, all right? Testimonies of change.